So over the, the past uh, two weeks, we've covered the first two verses of the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. And so we're just two verses in and we're two sermons in. There's a lot to go through. And, and in those two verses, God revealed himself to us as first and foremost, the creator. That is, according to the testimony of the Bible, all of matter and energy, every atom and, and subatomic particle from every speck of dust to the billions of stars in space, everything comes from and depends on God for life. So God has no rival. God has no needs. He is totally and eternally self existent. He is the beginning and the end. He is the single and sole author of life. There is no one else besides him. Verse one tells us this when it says in the beginning, God, God was there. God created and only God. And then in verse two, we're introduced to an earth in total chaos and disorder. Uh, an earth, the text says, without form, and void, without shape and without purpose, empty of life and covered in absolute darkness. And since God could have created the earth in its final form in verse one, with all of its beauty and life, which is what we see happen throughout the next six days, he did it. He began intentionally with a dark and disordered mess. And we noted last week that God's sovereign decision to, to start that way was to reveal to us what kind of God he is. And that is, he is a God who can take chaos and disorder and earth without form and void and shape it and chisel it and mold it into something beautiful and glorious and useful. And then he fills it with life. And that's exactly what he does to the chaos and disorder of our lives when we surrender to him. And so just from the first two verses of Genesis, it's clear that this book is not intending to give us a detailed scientific account of creation. Again, God is not giving Moses a class in divine astrophysics in less than 40 verses. That's not the intention. That's not the goal. Rather, the aim of the creation account in Genesis is to reveal the living God to us. To show us his nature and character and purpose. It's answering this question. This is what Genesis wants to answer. Who is God? Who is the God of the universe? Who is the God that was revealed to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Who is the God who spoke to Moses from a burning bush that uh, didn't turn to ash? Who is the God who led the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt with great signs and wonders? Who is this God who speaks, who serves, and who saves? Who is the God of the Bible? And Genesis wants to answer that question for us. And so tonight, as we study the first six days of creation, really the first three days in more depth, we'll look at the next uh, three days the following week. That's the question we're asking. That's our, that's our core question. That's all we care about. Who is God? What's he like? And I'll tell you this, there is no more important question in your life than that one. You will not answer a more important question than who is God to you? Who is God? And so let's go ahead and read our passage, pray, 
and dig in. So get your sheets before you and follow along with me. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation Plants yielding seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I admit, I confess there is nothing I can do to impart spiritual wisdom to reveal who you are through your word apart from you. Father, we are totally dependent on you for every breath we take and for every truth we are able to grasp. We are totally dependent on you for you to show us who you are. And so, Father, I pray right now by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would shine light into the darkness of our hearts and reveal your glory to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, our question is, right, who is God and what is he like? That's our question. And tonight and next week, we will see how the first six days of creation uh, reveal at least three attributes, three characteristics, uh, three insights into the nature of God. And the first attribute we see on full display tonight in our study of Genesis is the power of God. The power of God. And, and this is evidenced in, in lots of ways. But first, it's crucial to note how the description of what happens on each day follows a consistent pattern. In other words, this account has an intentional structure um, that's key to understanding the passage as a whole. So let me walk you through this. Let's study the passage together. Uh, let's look at verses three through five as our core example. You'll notice that the creative work of God on earth begins with a simple announcement. Look at verse three. It begins, and God said. And God said. This is a phrase that announces, that alerts us to listen for verbal speech. It's keying us in. What did God say? For example, if I say, Mr. Vorpal said, 
You'd be waiting for me to tell you what he said. And that's exactly what it's doing. It's announcing that God's word is about to come forth. And if you go down to the beginning of day two in verse six, so just take your finger and go down to verse six, you'll see that it starts the same way. And God said. And then go down to the beginning of day three's work. And again, it says, this, it, says it the same way. And God said. And so if you were to go through the first six days, you would see that God's work of forming and then filling the earth always begins with an announcement. And God said. But there's more. After each announcement, God gives a verbal command. He gives an order to creation. Look back at verse 3 again. It says, and God said, so that's the announcement. Let there be light. That's a command. And if you go down again to verse 6, you'll see the same pattern. And God said, announcement. Let there be an expanse, command. And again, if you went through the first six days, you would see that pattern show up each day. But there's more. So you see, it's very intentional. The structure is communicating to us something about God. And that's why I'm pointing it out to you. After the announcement and the command, what typically follows is a statement which says that God's command was indeed fulfilled. Look back at verse 3. It says, and God said, announcement, let there be light, command, and there was light, fulfillment. Now go down to verse 9, and you'll see the same pattern on day 3. It says, And God said, announcement, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, command, and it was so. And actually, that's the favorite expression to describe the fulfillment of God's commands. And so now that we've, we've sketched out some of the structural pattern we see in this passage, I want to ask the important question, what does this reveal to us about God now? Uh, what does this teach us about his nature? And, and without question, we can see that it shows us that God has power. Power. And, and to grasp the magnitude of his power, we just need to look at what he creates. What does God create? In verse 3, he says, let there be light. Now, before this command, the earth is in utter darkness, remember? Remember? the blackest, impenetrable darkness you could ever imagine. And with a word, with a simple command, light, bright, effulgent, brilliant light traveling at 186,000 miles per uh, second burst forth from the mouth of God to illuminate the entire earth. From the North Pole to the South Pole, from the East to the West, not a square inch, not a corner is left in darkness. And what's amazing is that the earth at this point doesn't have a sun. It doesn't have a moon. It doesn't have light. So where is this light that's covering every square inch of the earth coming from? Where does this light come from? Well, later in Scripture, the Apostle Paul tells us that God right now in heaven, it's in your cross-reference, He dwells, He resides, he, he exists in what He calls unapproachable light. That, that means that God's being, so if you can kind of just imagine with me, God's being, His 
essence is wrapped in such splendor and brilliance and purity that he's eternally emanating light right now. Blinding, fiery, beautiful, glorious light emanates from God always and forever. In fact, God's being is so bright and luminous that at the end of the age, when, when Jesus returns and he restores heaven on earth, it says in Revelation 21, 23, that the city of God will have this. Look at the cost reference. No need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamp. So the earth begins without a sun and it ends without a sun. And uh, interestingly, the Apostle Paul later uses, he uses this, you know, this foundational moment in history when God shines light on the earth for the first time as an analogy to describe the moment when God opens the eyes of a human heart to behold his glory for the first time. So if you look at your cross-reference, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He writes, for God who said, so the God who said this, let light shine out of darkness, that is, let there be light, that God has what? Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, so note how the light comes from the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And this is exactly what happens on day one. With almighty power, God simply says, let there be light. And there's light covering everything, emanating from his own being. And when God creates and forms the sky on day two, he does it the same way. He does it the same way. He simply speaks the command. Let there be an expanse. And the sky and atmosphere of the earth is formed at his word. On day three in verse nine, when God says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, it says, and it was so. So that means millions and millions of gallons of water are, are moved and gathered together to form oceans and lakes and rivers and waterfalls and all bodies of water. And in the book of Job, in chapter 38, verse 11, we hear this poetic expression of what happened in that moment when it describes the scene as God saying to the waters this, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. So I don't know if you've ever been by the lake of Mich Lake Michigan, and I, I don't know, I've just been over there walking by, and I didn't grow up near a lake. And so for me, as I look out into the just Lake Michigan, and it seems like it never ends, the, one of the thoughts that come to my mind is power. I think about how no human being can really overcome the, 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 the big bodies of water. They're not tameable. So, but, so for, what, for man, what for man is mighty and uncontrollable, for, for what wave, what tsunami, what hurricane has ever obeyed the voice of man? None. So what is untamable for man, God orders and directs with a simple word. All he says is let the waters 
be gathered, and it's so. And as the waters obey, it says, dry land appears. And that might be a bit of an understatement, considering that mountains as uh, high as 8,000 feet emerge and valleys as deep as 17,000 feet are exposed in that moment. And millions and millions of miles of plains and plateaus and hills are stretched out over the entire earth. And, and don't forget about the trillions of barrels of oil and hundreds of thousands of tons of gold and silver and precious gems and all the other valuable resources stored deep within the recesses of the earth. And then in verse 11, it says, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation. Plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. So according to the word of the Lord, the soil of the ground is prepared to produce countless varieties of flowers and vegetables and fruit trees, all different kinds of aromatic spices and herbs. And, and, and you can see, and we can see how the account so far, it's like with each stroke, with each command, it's painting a picture for us how each word that comes from the mouth of God brings about incredible demonstrations of power and authority. And remember, back when this account was revealed to and written down by Moses, the people of Israel who received this revelation, uh, they lived in a day and age where people believed that the ocean was a god. That the sun, the moon, the stars were gods. And that the world as we know it came into existence by a battle between the gods. That's what they believed. And so with each let there be, with each command, the book of Genesis is slaying every false god, every false deity, and proclaiming with absolute clarity, there is no other god like our god. He is powerful, supreme creator of the universe. And so that's exactly what God wants to reveal about himself to us tonight. He is powerful. He's really, really powerful. Do you have family problems at home? Do you struggle with anxiety and fear? Are you struggling with depression? Do you have loved ones with cancer? Are you buried with school and homework? Are you wearied by your own sin? Let me assure you, for whatever situation you find yourself in tonight, God has power. Galaxy-making, earth-forming power to meet every single one of your needs to solve every one of your problems, every struggle, every pain, every loss, God has the power to deliver you either in this life or the next. And he never gets tired. He never runs out of energy. He doesn't sleep. He's always awake. He's an insomniac. For, for every moment of every day, for all of eternity, God has existed in the fullness of his infinite power. Listen, the sun will burn out. The galaxies of stars will fade, but God's power will remain forever in full strength, never weakening, 
never lessening, never being exhausted. God is powerful. Students, uh, we have no problem. We have no dream that is too big for God. There's nothing that we could ever bring to the table that's harder than what God has already done with a word. With a word. And don't miss that. It's not a small point. With each repetition of, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, God is revealing to us that there is power, wonder-working power in specifically His Word, His speech, His, His declarations, His promises to us. God's Word contains the same power that created the universe. And that's why when talking about the Word of the Gospel, that is the good news about Jesus' death and, and resurrection for sinners. In Romans 1.16, it's on the cross-reference section. The Apostle Paul writes these words. Look there with me saying, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That is, Paul says, I'm not ashamed to proclaim to all how Jesus has died and risen again for sinners, even though they're going to beat me even though they're going to humiliate me, even though everywhere I go, they imprison me, and more times than I can count, even though the whole world might reject and despise me, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the word of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not embarrassed. Why, Paul? Why? Well, he tells us, look at the verse again. Why? For it, the gospel, is the power. The power of God for salvation. Listen, the biggest problem of our lives, it's not our loneliness. It, it's, it's not our uh, depression. It's not our messed up family life. It's not how that girl gossip behind your back. It's not your grades. It's not our physical appearance. It's not our wardrobe. It's not that you can't find your, your dress for homecoming. Our biggest problem is our broken and severed relationship with the God of Genesis. That's our problem. Our problem is that we have sinned and we continue to sin and we continue to rebel against the holy God who never gets tired who never grows weary, who commands oceans to be still and tells the mountains to rise and he upholds galaxies by the word of his problem. Our problem is that apart from the gospel, apart from Jesus bearing our sin on a bloody tree, apart from Christ, we will experience the full exertion of the infinite power of God against us for all of eternity in hell. That is our problem. That's our dilemma. And that's why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God for salvation, the power that saves us and restores our relationship back to our Creator. Students, I urge you now trust in the word of the gospel so that you might experience the power of God for salvation and not for judgment. 
As one preacher said long ago, it is better to meet God with tears in your eyes than weapons in your hand. And if you trust in Christ, if you believe in his name and surrender your life to follow him, all of the infinite power of God now works in your favor. He now promises to work all things to forget for good for those who love him. He promises to tilt the earth in your favor. If you just trust in Christ so that Paul says elsewhere, if God is for us, who can be against us? Our God is powerful. And that is both really, really good news. And also really, really sobering news. What is your relationship with this God of power? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father of great might and great love, both merciful and tender and majestic and holy. Lord, I pray that as the gospel goes forth tonight, that it would be the power of God for salvation, that, that one in this room would be delivered from the transcendent danger that awaits them in eternity. Lord, I pray even tonight that whosoever believes, we trust this promise, whoever believes will be saved. And so, Father, give us grace, humble us. And for those who are saved, for those who have trust in you, Lord, I pray that you would burden their hearts to share the power of God for salvation, that is the gospel, with their friends. I pray that they would not hide it, they wouldn't be ashamed of it, that they would deliver it with great vigor and encouragement and excitement, that their friends might be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.